well to introduce this challenging text. In 1930s, um, I'm going to get this name wrong, but uh, somebody who speaks Japanese will tell me, Sakichi Toyota. I may not have gotten that right. He's the founder, founder of the Toyota Motor Company. Um, he pioneered this concept called root cause analysis. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about here. He said, here's a quote from him, all problems arise from root causes. So you find the root cause and your problem will be solved. All problems arise from their root causes. Find the root cause, your problems can be solved. So his method has been kind of um, known or you, you hear talked about as the five whys, like ask why, five, any parent knows this, ask why five times and then until the root cause is, is found and then you'll find a solution to that problem. And so it's a concept that's been built on and developed by countless um, leaders and thinkers and organizations. I see some of you smiling because you've been through like Six Sigma or uh, Tableau uses it here in Seattle for their consulting work. Um, United Nations actually uses this quite a bit to understand like global issues around the environment or human rights violations or geopolitical conflict. They'll, they'll kind of use this method. So companies, organizations, leaders have widely used this concept of, of uh, tackling problems by going to root causes, searching for root causes. So the easiest way maybe to understand this in our own lives, because we're not all of us are kind of in those professional circles, is to think of this in terms of common problems. So for example, if one of us was sick, this is kind of the beginning of flu season, and throwing up at work, we'd often, sorry for that graphic image, but you'd often go to a doctor and ask them for the root cause for that sickness, wouldn't you? Or if your car stops working as my truck, which is actually I drove today, but I shouldn't be driving it, just stops working. So I, I, I'd go to a mechanic if I were wise and ask the mechanic to find the root cause for the malfunction rather than just letting it sit. If your business is underperforming, if your family is living in dysfunction in a certain area, you'd be wise to ask why, right? For each of those examples, we could just find a simple remedy. Like you could take throwing up at work. You might just go home and find a bucket and sit in the bathroom, right? Some of you have done this. Or if your car, like me, you might just take the bus or ride your bike and leave it there. <laughs> just let it sit. Uh, or to solve the feeling of disconnection to the family, you, you might just take your kids and your wife out for dinner and a movie and call it good. Like, we're a happy family now, and just pretend. Uh, but that, those, those solutions only are addressing symptoms to the problems. Uh, and what you're not considering are the deeper problems, the, the root cause. Uh, your, your stomach flu requires medicine. Uh, your car probably requires a new alternator, or in my case, a new radiator. Uh, uh, or your family just needs to sit down and talk. And so, as Toyota discovered, or I, maybe he just kind of analyzed better than most of us, we need to perform root cause analysis on almost anything in our lives if we're actually going to fix it, if we're going to actually address the issues. So all problems arise from root causes. Find the root cause, your problem will be solved. So what does it have to do with Romans 2? And the, the little bit of chapter 3 I had read for us. I mean, even a cursory reading, that was a pretty cursory reading for us, or hearing, is going to reveal a number of problems. Like there is judgment and wrath and anger on the part of God. I heard a few of you go, huh, ugh, I don't like to hear that. There's rejection of truth. There's self-centeredness. There's the practice of evil on the part of humanity. Um, if you go on to chapter 3 and really read it, there's a shedding of blood. There's misery. There's just, it's just ruin. It's just awful. It goes on and on and on. So there's problem upon problem upon problem being presented to us in this short passage, which, which begs the question, how do we address those problems? How might we address them? Or do we? 
And I'll be honest, I confess this to our, our huddle this morning. My tendency with these kinds of passages is to either find the silver lining in them, like the nugget of encouragement. Like there's got to be a verse in here that makes me feel better. I can put on a cat poster and like help me in my, soothe my discomfort, right? And just I'll feel better. Uh, or just avoid it. Like that's kind of how I approached Romans 2 and I got into it this week. Like could we just skip to Romans 4 or 5 or 12 or 15? I mean, whatever. I'll just, like this one is the stuff of maybe a good Bible study, but not a sermon on a Sunday. Like, and, and after all, this is just stuff of the ancient world, right? And, and th- we're postmodern, and like, this is no longer relevant to our experience. This is t- 2018, after all. Like, why are we still talking about this stuff? So my question to us is, are we? Like, are we really? Is this, I mean, this is happening in our society right now. Um, sexual abuse, political corporate corruption. I mean, think of the many failures in our society, our lives, we're just orbiting around us, maybe in our own hearts. And as our society is failing to serve even the most vulnerable in our communities, we are Romans too. We are kind of just a page out of the book. Many of the same themes are happening right now. So we'd be wise to consider with this passage together, why? Ask the question, why? Why is truth being rejected? Why are people in leadership and power centered only upon themselves, as Romans 2 talks about, and it's happening today, about their advancement, their reputation, who they are. Why do we tolerate evil today? Why? Um, we'd be wise to ask why. And kind of, and, and let me tell you, I've, I did some root cause analysis on this passage. Let me tell you what I found in this passage as I've done this, a sort of thread that runs through the whole thing. It's why we read Romans 3.23, that, that famous verse. We could all recite it. Let's say it together. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The root cause, I'd say, for, for any of the trouble we're facing then and today is simply this idea that the Bible talks about as sin. Uh, I've been reading this book by a, a Jewish scholar. His name's um, Lewis Newman. I heard him in this um, NPR program called On Being with Krista Tippett. How many of you guys have listened to On Being before? A few of you. Really amazing program. And he was on some time ago. He wrote this book on repentance. And since I thought I'd be talking a little bit about repentance today, I've been reading the, about the Jewish idea. It's teshuva is the, the word for repentance in, in um, Hebrew. But in his conclusion, listen to this. Uh, he says, the problem of sin persists today. Whether we look at our lives, the private lives of individuals, where parents still abandon and abuse their children, the practices of corporations where corruption is rampant, or the conduct of nations where injustice and cover-ups are prevalent. The world is rife with sinful behavior. Clergy, too, have been caught up in this scandal to a remarkable degree, uh, as evidenced by the Roman Catholic priests found guilty of sexual abuse, Orthodox rabbis found guilty uh, of uh, violating labor laws, and I would add in there, as evangelical pastors have fallen greatly these days by abusing um, other people, taking advantage of their privilege. Everywhere we turn, it seems the moral fabric of our society is coming undone. And this is all just commonplace sinfulness we encounter every day, he says. Before we even begin to contemplate the enormity of genocide in Rwanda and Darfur, or the fact that we tolerate a world in which over a billion people lack access to clean drinking water. And then he says this, I do not mean to suggest that the people uh, today are more fundamentally depraved than they were in ages past. In fact, any careful reading of history will reveal that people are prone to transgression in roughly equal degrees in fairly comparable ways 
irrespective of their period of time, culture, religious affiliation, or other factors. This confirms, he says, what our religious and moral teachers have been telling us since the beginning of time, that sinfulness has been and continues to be an irreducible part of our humanity. Until the messianic redemption, we are all sinners to one degree or another. Happy Sunday to you. (laughs) Uh, So we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is what Paul is articulating to us in Romans 2. Uh, Romans 7, he'll say it again, like, who can can rescue me? Uh, And he's just demonstrating the intractability of sin. The root cause. And yet, remember what I said, if you, if you ask why enough, if you find the root cause, what will you find as well? A solution. And he embeds some solutions in here. If we're careful to mine the passage for them, this, this path forward. He sketches out a path forward for in, the, in, the, in this vexing world of sin we live. Um, steps we might be able to take in the face of sin, uh, in the midst of sin, even the sinfulness of our own hearts. And, and, and live by faith. So there's three that I, I outlined for you. There's probably more, um, but I'm a pastor. There's three. <laughs> there's always three. We'll probably like do two, but we're going to look at three here, maybe two. Maybe two. Uh, first, be led in repentance, which is uh, verse four. Two, persist in doing good, which is verse seven. And then we'll maybe dive in a little briefly to receive the gift of a new, a new heart, which is verse 29. Romans two. So if you have that open, can follow along. So first, first step in kind of dealing with the reality of sin is be led in repentance. So here's what Paul says. Don't you know that it's God's kindness that is intended to lead to repentance? So he's suggesting a path forward, a path that begins with this old familiar practice of repentance, that God desires repentance for all people. Now, repentance is the Greek word. You've heard this before if you've been around the church, metanoia. It's to recognize your condition and do something about it, okay? So it's to change your mind and then make a decisive turn. As a, the image of a, it's a metaphor of a 180-degree turn. It's not just about feeling bad. It's not an intention. Like, it's not a change in your attitude. It's an attitude accompanied by action. That's key. So it's, it's echoed frequently throughout, throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New. In fact, Jesus himself was constantly preaching our need for repentance. His first sermon, you can find it in the beginning of Matthew, was a nine-word summons, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's it. Uh, repentance, as Oswald Chambers, one of my favorite kind of um, devotional writers, says, is, is the very foundation of Christianity. It's the beginning. It's the foundation. It's the substance of it. In fact, when Martin Luther, he's the, the great reformer of the Protestant church, when he nailed the, the 95 theses to the Wittenberg Castle wall, do you know what the first thesis, first theses of those 95 is? Some of you know this. Good Lutherans. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant for the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. Your entire life is meant to be a life of repentance. So the, the first of Martin Luther's theses, uh, as he was laying out his understanding of, of biblical gospel Christianity, is all of life is repentance. Your entire life is meant to be a life of repentance. Now that's completely different than what I think the world outside the church thinks. For example, Lord Byron, the great romantic poet, he said this, that the weak alone repent. Only the weak repent. So here's Luther saying, all of life is repentance. Here's Lord Byron, the weak repent. You're weak if you do that. And he represents the world, like I said. Uh, Luther represents what Christians or the church think. So here's the question, who's right? Luther or Byron? Who's right? And I'm going to say something that might surprise you. I think both are right, (laughs) to a degree. 
Um, and here's why. Because it's, there's actually two kinds of repentance if you read Scripture. Uh, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance. So there it is. That leads to salvation and, and, and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow leads to salvation uh, and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So he's articulating two types of repentance. Isn't that interesting? There's two ways to repent. Uh, and there's, there's two kinds of repentance. There's the kind of acknowledgement of sin, uh, admission of doing wrong, or confession of guilt, however you want to put it, that leads to salvation and life and freedom and confidence. And there's a way that is also leading, leads to def- devastation, self-doubt, loss of power, discouragement, just self-loathing. There's two types of repentance. And it's important as we think about sin, about how to deal with sin, that we get this right. As I've said before, there's, there's a way of repenting that's rooted in religion. And of course, there's a way that's rooted in the gospel. And I've talked about this a lot, but I, I need to reframe it again today. Re- religion is just a, a way of coming, uh, it's a framework of thought. People call Christianity or the church religious. Uh, it's a way of thinking this way. If I have a good record, if I do good, if I live a good life, go to church, read my Bible, pray, give money, if I'm in my shoes, if I minister to people a lot, if I have a lot of meetings, if I'm in an office downstairs a lot, and I meet a lot of people and pray with them, if I serve people, if I'm a good husband or a good wife or a good father or a good son, if I'm just good, 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 then I've, if I have a good record, guess what? God will accept me. That's religion. In that framework, what's the source of your power? Think about it. Your goodness. It's your moral record. Your good record. You're just adding, you're just putting, it's like a, a resume. You're building a resume. We might even say something like this. When I look at that record and I stand on it, man, I have power. I have confidence. Man, I feel good about myself. And this is the reason why within a religious understanding things, repentance is a disaster. Because, first of all, it's an experience of disempowerment and weakness. Remember, repentance is admitting that something's wrong and turning away from it and moving in a new direction. Repentance separates you from your own power. It's saying, man, I failed. I'm flawed. I'm broken. It's so disempowering. You're devastated if you start down the path of repentance, if you're building your life on your goodness. You start to feel inadequate. You start to feel like you don't have a self. You're separated from that self you've created. You you, you lose your hope. Are you with me? Have you ever done this? Uh, Not only that, but repentance in that framework is a form of atonement. This is a fancy word for just making things right. And so you're atoning for your sin. You're saying things like this. If my great hope was my moral record in, in building that resume, that moral resume, if I repent and I know I'm bad, if I beat myself up, if I loathe myself, ironically, you're, what you're doing is you're building up your identity. You're talking, listen to this, you talk about, I've done this, about how bad you are, how much you've screwed up, and what are you trying to do? You're trying to get that record back because, listen to this, you're saying, oh, I thought I was a good person, maybe I'm not as good as I thought, but if I talk about like I'm pretty self-deprecating if I talk about how bad I am. Well, only a good person would do that, right? Only a good person would be humble enough to say how bad they are. You see, in other words, surely God and other people, and, and I'll become to believe, if I beat myself up enough, that I'm actually really okay. And God will accept me. <laughs> so within this religious framework, repentance is a disaster. It separates you from your power, your confidence, and a perfect example of that is in my favorite story in the, in the New Testament, is in Luke chapter 15. 
uh, and I'll, I'll come back to this twice, but is the story of the prodigal son, the so-called prodigal son. It's actually two lost sons, but that younger son, the prodigal, the so-called prodigal, when he says to his father, you know, he's taken this early inheritance, gone off, and, and as Luke tells us, gone off and, and spent it with wild living. He comes to his senses. That's the point of repentance, right? Gets up, starts home. And do you know what he's rehearsing in his, the speech he rehearses, he tells himself, remember this speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Take me back as a slave. That's religious repentance. He's saying, I'm going to earn it back. I'm, I'm terrible, but that must make me good because I've realized it. <laughs> I'm going to pay it back. I'm going to earn it back. And as a result, in that framework, which is, again, this religious framework, if you allow that to unfold on its own, it just goes on and on and on. It's endless, and it will not lead to renewal. It will never lead to transformation. That son will die a slave in his own home. Which is why Paul says in Romans 2.4, don't you know, haven't you realized, it's actually God's kindness that is intended to lead to repentance. Not your self-loathing, not your self-hatred, uh, not your sorrow. It's God's kindness that is intended to lead to repentance. Now, what is Paul trying to say here? That kindness is intended to do this. Well, Christopher Wright, he's an Anglican priest. He's an Old Testament scholar I really like. He says this about kindness. In the Bible, kindness is often linked with generosity. The words are similar. So Paul uses this word, kindness. It could have, he could have said God, God's generosity, that God is generously providing something for another person's benefit. That's biblical kindness. So it's interesting because that insight means that kindness as generosity goes beyond duty. God's not being kind because, or the father to his son isn't being kind because he has to. It means he's doing something he doesn't have to do. He's choosing to do that. That kindness goes beyond reward. It means he's doing something he's not going to get paid to do. Father, as you know the story, he's going to throw a party. He's not going to get paid back for that party. He's divesting himself once again for this son. Um, he's not going to expect any reward. You, you do what's kind for the sake of another person because you love to do it. That's the reward. God's kindness leading us in repentance means that we're called to see that God is a generous God and that God's generosity is actually the catalyst for our turning and our returning to God. It's the catalyst for that. So here again, I'm reminded of that story of the two lost sons of the, the, the prodigal son. And really the father in that story, which would be the focal point, I think, for any of us in this conversation. So where, let me ask you, where's the father in that story? When you think about that story, you have the two sons, you have the one son out in the field, which we won't talk about today. You have the other son walking down the road. Where's the father when the son, the younger son's rehearsing his speech? Father, take me back. I'm not worthy. You know, I've sinned. Here's what he's not doing. He's not doing what I would probably do, sitting on my porch, looking down the road, just occasionally glancing to see if this, this kind of punk son is coming home. He's not doing that. We don't have a, 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 a father who's saying when he does see the son, oh my goodness, there's my former son artist, you know, who just blew it all. Uh, this better be good. Like what he did to me... <laughs> Ruin my reputation. Everybody's talking about me. Let me just, let him knock. Let him cry. Let him grovel. And if he knocks and cries and grovels enough, if he's abject enough in his sorrow, 
maybe his repentance were you my love. We don't have a father like that. He's saying this better be good, right? That's not the father. We have this father who's, by the way, an ancient Near Eastern patriarch in this story who is running down the road toward his son. And, and if you know the story, if you know a little bit about ancient Near Eastern culture, patriarchs didn't run. Men didn't run. Children ran. Little boys ran. Uh, but this one, men didn't do it. This one runs. That's key, it's such a key detail. The, 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 the father is running down the road to his son who is in ruins. He runs to him, and literally in Luke 15, it says he falls on his son's neck. He falls on his neck. He kisses him, puts a robe around his nakedness, clothes him, uh, puts a, a ring on his finger, which means he can actually, it's more than just a sign of being in the family. It means he can actually sign checks. It's a signet ring. He can sign checks. He's got access to the bank account again. <laughs> That's crazy. Throws a party, an expensive, elaborate party, invites his other brother in, he refuses to let his son earn his way back. Refuses. He grants it with just amazing generosity. That's why it's called the prodigal son. It should be called the prodigal father, actually. I mean, this crazy, wild, gracious, radical father. I mean, do you see it? The whole religious idea of repentance is just being blown away here, jettisoned. And in its place, we're given a place, a, a, a a, a vision of gospel repentance, which comes through generosity, the generosity of God, God's generous love enabling our ability to repent. Um, here's how I'll say it. Our repentance does not produce God's love. Your repentance, your sorrow will never produce God's love. It's actually the opposite. God's love, his generosity towards you produces your repentance, causes it. it God's pouncing on you. <laughs> God's kissing you. God's reckless love towards you. This father is being reckless with his love. That's the catalyst for your repentance. Uh, Frederick Bigner said this once, that true repentance spends less time looking at the past and saying, sorry, I'm sorry, and more time looking at the future saying, wow. Less time looking at the past saying, I'm sorry, more time looking at the future saying, wow. And I love that because it highlights the true nature of repentance. That it's, it's, it's about getting in touch with the character of God, uh, his kindness toward you. And the degree that I get in touch with that, in as much as I can scan the horizon and see a father who's running toward me, despite what I've done, despite what I've failed to do, despite what I think about myself, um, if, as much as I see him and his image of me as his son or you as his daughter, that you're beloved to God, despite anything, no matter where you've been, what you've done, when I can see that reality and I can say, wow, that's amazing, I'm on a joyful journey of repentance. That's what Luther's talking about. That's what Paul's talking about. God's kindness is intended to bring you to repentance. Do you see the liberation of repentance? How repentance, living within that world, absolutely obliterates sin obliterates it, has no power over us. A repentant person is somebody who's free, free from guilt, free from shame, free from religion, free to just be a son and be a daughter. And that's amazing. That's the first step Paul offers us in dealing with sin. Okay? Here's the second one. It's in verse 7. It's this invitation to persist in doing good. Those who, by persistence in doing good, 
seek glory, honor, and immortality, God's going to give eternal life. I want to hone down in on this idea of being persistence in doing good. And the words in this verse are, are just loaded. I mean, like you could do word studies for every verse in Romans and things, I think, and spend an entire lifetime on it. But I'm going to unpack these two words, persistence and good. So first, persistence. Um, this is a word that if you look at other translations, English translations, like in the ESV, it's patience. Uh, in the New American Standard, it's perseverance. In the Old King James, it's continuance. And so as you look at this, anytime you have a word that's never translated the same twice, what that means or should tell you is there's a, there's, it's a very complex word and a very important word. And here's the Greek word, hypomeno. And right there, you have an idea of what it means. Hyper, hypo, means super, right? Like when your kids are hyper, <laughs> they're being like super energetic, right? And it's so intense. Uh, and meno is the Greek word for stand. So put those two together. What does that mean? Hyperstand. <laughs> There's your new word for the day. Uh, like st- hold space, stand firm. That's what Paul is saying. Now, what does he say stand firm in? Stand firm in goodness. And goodness, interestingly, like kindness, is linked to the word generosity. Isn't that interesting? For example, Jesus once told this story in Matthew 20 about a man who owns a vineyard. And there's these workers who worked all day, and there's some that came later in the day, um, in the last hour or two, and everybody got paid the same. You know that story? And you know what Jesus says, in, or the, the vineyard owner, Jesus is saying through this story at the very end, Matthew 20, 15, are you envious because I'm generous? And the word generous actually is the same exact word that Paul uses for goodness. And so uh, what he's saying is, Jesus is saying that good people don't always worry about what's fair, uh, but rather they want to err on the side of generosity. It's not these people's fault, for example, in that story, that they were hired at the end of the day. It wasn't their fault that they came late and that they needed a day's wages to buy food for their family. So the owner chooses to be good, to be generous toward their needs rather than being strictly fair in relation to the others. Do you see it? So apply that to your life. When you associate good, persist in being good, with a title or a function, like, for example, a good parent or a good teacher or a good police officer or good doctor, we sometimes mean, or we usually mean that a person's not only good at that, right? We, we do mean that. But uh, we also mean that, that they go beyond the strict limits of what their work has called them to do. They act with generosity. A good doctor spends more than just a few minutes with you. A good teacher stays after school to help that student who's struggling. A good parent leaves work and leaves their phone and sacrifices their time for their children. Right? Am I right? And so we often say, out of the goodness of your heart, you did this. Uh, And so what lies at the heart of goodness, really, other than generosity? It's integrity. I mean, really, this is Jesus is talking, or Paul's talking about integrity. When we say that you're a really good man or a woman, when I say that about you, I'm saying you're a person of integrity. Uh, it's what you see is what you get. What you are on the outside is the same as you are on the inside. Your words and your, beha- your behavior match, right? That there's no pretense. There's no sham in your life. Um, when you're doing good, or when Paul calls us to do good, to persist in goodness in the face of sin— He's not, at, he's not telling us to placate, to just, you know, get a good soundbite, 
good photo op, be a good person, right? Just act like a good Christian. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't swear. He's not talking about that. He's saying good people do what they do because it's the right thing to do. They have integrity. They're generous. Goodness is, is, is what it means to be pure in heart. And in Matthew, when Jesus is talking on the Sermon on the Mount, goodness is, is to be transparent and authentic. This is what goodness is all about. That's what you're called to develop in the face of a sinful world, in the face of the sin of your heart. Hyperstand, stand firm in goodness. Be, be a person of integrity. So do you know what that means to be a person of integrity? Have you thought about this? Being on, same on the outside as you are on the inside. It might mean that you're standing firm despite your feeling of fear. Like uh, you're, you're afraid of the future. You're afraid of what, what the future holds now. You're afraid of your next step. You're just, you're just like gripped by fear. I know I often am. Fear of really being known by other people. If they really knew me and what I think about and what I deal with, standing in goodness, same on the outside as you are on the inside. Think about that. Fear just churning away in you is, is saying, be courageous enough to be vulnerable with other people, to, to, to lead with vulnerability, to, 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 to articulate to other people, yeah, I'm afraid. I'm really afraid. But I can stand with you. Because I can, I, I can stand in goodness. Because God is good to me. Uh, other times it might be uh, standing firm despite your doubt. Like, you have inner conflicts. Like, man, I don't understand everything that's going on right now. Um, my faith is being shaken. I have deep questions about justice and humanity in the future. Would God lead you into deeper faith through embracing those questions? Not doubt as the opposite of faith, but as a, a vital element of it. That's what it would look like to stand in goodness in the face of doubt. Other times it might be to choose to pray when you don't know the answer. It might be to worship when you're exhausted. It might look like sacrificial love or service when there's a person in your life that you know that you know that you know longs for relationship. Standing in goodness might just be standing firm with them and saying to them in some way, you're not alone. You're not alone. I'm with you. Because I'm with you, God's with you. Interestingly here, Jesus in Acts chapter 10 uh, is described by Peter when he's talking to Cornelius. You know that story of him going to Cornelius' house? And he says that Jesus is a man who went around doing good, just like Paul's telling us to do. Jesus persisted in goodness his whole life. That's how Peter describes Jesus, which doesn't mean that Jesus just helped a lot of people across the street said some nice stuff, that he just did good stuff. Like he did, but it means that Jesus was a person of integrity. He knew what, the, what God the Father wanted him to do, and he did it. He hyperstood with his, like his choice to follow the Father's will. Uh, he demonstrated character. Uh, think of the number of times Jesus offered an alternative in his life, an easy way out, and he didn't take it. The devil tempted him in the desert, right after his baptism, do death-defying stunts, you know, grasp at political power. And what did he do? No, no, no. He chose the path of suffering. Uh, his mother and brothers, later in the gospel, try and come and get him because they think he's crazy. They don't like, he's, they're making, they're, he's, he's making a show of their family. What does he say there? <laughs> his true mother and brothers are those who do the will of the Father. Uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's, he's looking for another way out. And what does he say? Not my will, but your will, Father, be done. 
Even Pontius Pilate is dangling this opportunity to get out of it in front of him, and he's staring at the cross in the face, and Jesus refuses. He says, I came for this reason, and you don't take my life from me. I lay it down freely. All of this, Jesus is demonstrating as a person of goodness, a person of integrity, what it looks like for us to stand in goodness. Not my will, but your will be done, Father. That's a great way, a good picture of what it looks like or might look like for us to persist in goodness, to simply approach our day and say, not my will, Father, your, your will be done. And in that way, I mean, we're, we're called to persist ourselves, to stand, stand firm in goodness, but we're also called to consider the goodness of Jesus. Remember, Peter talks about him as one who went around doing good. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, Consider him who endured so much from others. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And interestingly there, the word endured, consider him who endured much for others. Guess what that word is? It's the same word as hyperstand. We're called to consider him who hyperstood. It's Christ in you, as we say often, who is standing firm. It's Christ in you doing good. It's Christ persisting. If it's not Christ, this is just religious performance. And like I said, that's just going to wear you down and ultimately dry you up. Christ must be the very center of all of this for it to make any difference in your life or our lives. Which is why I put number three here. I won't spend much time on this, but I'll just read the last verse of Romans 2. Um, And briefly, briefly unpack it. This is what Paul says. The true follower of Christ, he says the true Jew, I'm going to put it in terms for us. The true follower of Christ is one who belongs to God in heart. In heart. The true follower is a man or a woman whose circumcision, he's talking, I don't have time to talk all about circumcision, but (laughs) it's not just circumcision that's an outward affair, but a God-made sign upon the heart. And that results in a life lived not for the approval of man, or, but for the approval of God. Uh, God says this same thing in a different way in Ezekiel. When it says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. I'm going to cleanse you from all your impurities, your sin. This is the promise. I'm going to, by giving you a new heart, I'm going to put a new spirit in you, a heart of flesh. Take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And what they're talking about there, both Paul, Ezekiel, is that God is going to place Christ in our lives. That repentance, renewal, goodness are matters of the heart. That what what Jesus did came from who he was in his heart. His identity as a beloved son. And your goodness, your repentance, your life, in as much as it's going to be a life lived for God, must begin with union. Union with God the Father. God living his life, expressing his life through your life. And so we've been given this opportunity. We do it. We, we're given the opportunity every time we gather, but especially today, uh, to persist in goodness by receiving Christ in us. Um, and so that's why we have the, the communion table set before us today. Um, it's a means by which, it's a vital means by which we grow. Uh, an invitation to come and repent. <laughs> Gospel repentance. Receive the gift of God's goodness. Receive his broken body for our healing. Receive his shed blood for the forgiveness of our lives and the lives of many. Um, Receive new hearts. That's what this is about. This is not just a snack. (laughs) This is an opportunity to to begin again. Say, God, I want to live for you. 
and I want you to live through me. So let me take a moment to pray, um, and then I'll frame our time of communion. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we, I confess uh, on behalf of our community, God, that uh, there's much conflict in our lives. Um, there are many things happening in our world, God, but that we're uh, uncertain about. There are even things that um, Paul in this letter to the Romans did not address. Uh, conflicts, questions, doubts, fears. Um, and then there are things in our lives, God, that we are struggling with, secret things, um, and some that are even exposed. And so, God, inasmuch as repentance is a journey of freedom, we want to be like this younger son, God, walking down that road, aware that the Father is coming at us with open arms of love. God, might that be our journey this morning to this table where we're unsure of what is happening in the world around us, where we're unsure of how we might um, might live more faithfully. Uh, God, would we try not to be people that become more sure, but would we become people that are more open to you um, to receive the gift of your love? And might that transform us, God. Thank you that this gift is available to us this morning. Um, We come open to you, Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.